Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 83, I think it is, uh, recorded on October 4th of 2019, uh, the Photo Geekery podcast where uh, me, your host, Don Kamarechka, invites another photo geek on to opine about the week's news. Uh, And this week, we've got some interesting stories to cover from new cameras, crazy lenses, copyright, and more. Uh, And to discuss all of this, disseminate it down to some useful nuggets of knowledge, I have Jeff Harmon of the Photo uh, photo taco podcast uh, as well as a general photo geek in uh, all forms when I see you commenting on things on social media everything from um, you know what camera or what computer to build if you're on a budget I see you posting that stuff on Twitter and blog posts and stuff all the time uh, Jeff your opinion is very much appreciated by me and hopefully by the listeners as well welcome back to the podcast thanks Don happy to be back on with you yeah, and uh, yeah, what have you been up to since we've spoken last? Well, doing doing the podcast episodes keeps me really busy. Um, we've had I I don't do a ton of uh, portrait photography, but I do. I have a few families that uh, that we get with pretty much every fall. They they love getting fall photos, so I've been doing a little bit of portrait work, and then my day job. I'm a, I do information security, so I've got a got a lot going on. Yeah, well, uh, information security, anything in the IT field, really, whether you're keeping stuff secure or you're just building infrastructure, um, it's a it's a crazy space to be in. You'll never be out of work in that area, I can no, guarantee you. No, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, like, even as, as photographers, we come across some stories... Uh, we talked about it uh, a number of episodes ago about the um, uh, the direct uh, printing feature from camera to printer protocols uh, that were publicized as being um, you know vulnerable on Canon cameras, but right. so many other cameras have that stuff as well. And you'd be surprised how many embedded systems we own um, that never go updated. Maybe this should be a PSA to anybody listening to this. If you've got a home router which you do, uh, go and just check and see if there's a firmware update for that. Let's just go yeah. ahead and maybe there is uh, you know, something that you can do to keep yourself more secure by pressing a couple of buttons that uh, doesn't happen automatically, right? Right, right. Yep, it's yep. A very good advice. All right. Well, let's uh, let's dig into some of the stories of the latest tech that we have uh, on the docket today. Um, uh, you know, we, we missed last week and things have been kind of crazy uh, for my schedule here, as I'm sure you know, Jeff, when, uh, when you're trying to schedule your own podcasts, it's hard <laughs> yeah. to do it on a reliable basis. But um, coming across my radar from uh, September 30th and then also uh, October 3rd, we've got two new camera announcements. And they don't get me really excited, but they're still worth talking about because of the fact that they seem weird and we like weird things on this podcast. Number one from Petapixel, uh, a first look, uh, the upcoming uh, digital SLR flagship APSC digital SLR from Pentax. And that seems like an anachronism here. I mean, at (laughs) least in the end of 2019, how can a company be producing a flagship DSLR? You know, the flapping mirror variety. We're not talking about a mirrorless interchangeable lens camera. This is using the standard Pentax K mount um, using a, uh, a crop sensor. And, uh, I mean, it's not new to Pentax. They've made cameras in this line for, for quite a while, but they're touting this as something that is revolutionary and drool worthy and, uh, and will be launching not this year, uh, but in 2020. So does 2020 have a place for a, a flagship flapping mirror camera that is, not going to compete with the flagships of whatever the final swan song from Canon will be, which presumably will be the 1DX Mark III. I don't think this is in the same category. So who wants this camera, Jeff? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I mean, so I, I'm still very much in the DSLR world myself. And really, though, it's, it's because I'm a hobbyist. I... I don't do this as a profession. And, and so I, I use the tools that I've got with me and, and I can accomplish the goals that, that I have with the cameras I have, but they're old. I, I, I'm not buying a new camera every year. It just doesn't fit into what I do with photography to be able to do that. So, um, so there, there's a reason I'm, I'm making a very, very deliberate choice 
in staying where I am and still have, I just love having so much fun with those cameras and it's a very capable camera to be able to do it. Flagship and DSLR in 2020, I am agreeing with you. Those are, those are two different things. (laughs) I don't see how this can be a flagship camera. What, what they're going to, I'm interested to know now how they can label it that. What do they think they're bringing to the table in 2020 in a DSLR that is going to make it worthy of that kind of a title? What what interesting thing are they going to do to make that happen? Um, that I'm I'm very interested to to find out because I agree with you. It's I don't see how those two things go together. Yeah, and I'm looking at the the outside images uh, of, of just the body of this camera. We we don't have solid specs, or at least right. there's none in this article. But it looks just kind of like a standard camera. Yeah. It's got all the buttons, knobs, and dials that one would expect to see, uh, which would be you know maybe there's a um, slightly better sensor or slightly better hardware inside for processing or autofocus or something. But it would just be a step up from what we're all currently using and maybe a step up within that brand but then on par with what's currently available on the market today from the competition and i want to go back to something that you said jeff about uh you know you being still firmly planted in the dslr market and i I know most of the listeners are unless you've uh, bought into a mirrorless camera um but when you are going to make your next serious camera purchase decision that's when you're probably not going to look at another dslr unless there's a really great steal on the used market right for sure yeah the the next one um, I'm not even sure I'm going to stay with the camera brand I'm in. So I, I'm in Canon today and I, there, there's not anything super compelling there that, so honestly, the biggest reason I haven't done it yet is I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't afford to really kind of do both at the same time. I can't, I can't go buy a, uh, a new camera with, and probably new lenses and without selling the old stuff first, I don't want to be without a camera for a little while, at least not yet. It hasn't been so compelling or I haven't had such problems or challenges with my current setup that I have, have been convinced to go through what's going to be relatively painful for me <laughs> to, to go and do this. Uh, so I'm going, I, I'm waiting until I get some other compelling reason and it's it's happening a lot. I'm I'm the the newer Sony cameras in particular look really really fun to go and play with. And I've rented them because I've wanted to check them out and see how it is. And I, I love that. But you're right. They, they, there's probably I'm probably not going to be staying in DSLR land with the next camera purchase that I make. You mentioned that the transition would be painful, though. Um, yeah. And so maybe this is. Uh, Rico Pentax's way of uh, of lessening that pain to say, okay, well, you don't have to jump ship right away. We've got one more for you while they might be working on a, uh, a mirrorless transition. Because if they're not, then this is the end of the line. Sure. Right? I, I can't see them continuing to produce this stuff um, uh, extensively moving forward with the, uh, the idea that, okay, Canon might be doing rebels for a little while still i mean there might the market's not going to just completely disappear overnight right um but on the flagship scale you know when you're looking to see okay well what is the top end of a product um and then people might not buy the flagship but they'll buy into the system as uh, uh as a benefit for that flagship bringing brand equity along with it right uh and i don't think we're seeing that here the only thing that could make this viable for me is price. What is this going to cost in right. terms of, and I don't even mean for profit. I mean, if Pentax wants to keep the brand loyalty there to keep people on the brand, they have to just about give these away. Uh, it's my opinion that if they want to keep their brand moving forward to a mirrorless transition, if they sell this at a at basically a zero profit point, then they will maintain their brand equity. And they're not going to be making money on it. But if they lose that brand equity, as you see, uh, people jumping ship all the time, you're considering Sony uh, and pretty well every mirrorless brand, even if you're jumping within the same brand is going to be valuable. And so at that point, you're going to have to say to yourself, well, uh, you know, how how am I going to move forward? Uh, Am I going to stay with the same brand or am I going to jump to another brand? And a lot of people are making that jump. If this will stop that jump, then that will, I think, serve its purpose. But that's 
all I can really find value in this uh, this sort of pseudo announcement for next year from uh, from Pentax. So, uh, yeah, uh, 100 years of history they're promoting this as, and um, you know you can't you can't bank on that history to push you forward for the next 100. So we'll see where this goes. Um, but, uh, kind of hot on the heels of that. Uh, and I just added this to the rundown just before we started recording because it came out uh, after I had made the show notes. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Sony has officially unveiled, uh, the A92. And we were talking about Sony as a possible, uh, brand to jump into. And, you know, I was, I was of the mind that this announcement would come a little bit later. You know, I was, um, thinking that, okay, Canon and Nikon are the big competitors here in this space. And we still haven't seen exactly what Canon is going to do with their 1DX Mark III. And it had just been an assumption of mine that Canon was going to, you know, uh, you know, hit the ground running and have all the praise and hurrah. And then Sony was going to basically slap them around with the specs and price of the A92 and have a good laugh about it. Um, that kind of happened the opposite way here. And the A92 doesn't really have significant improvements over the original A9. Uh, you know, aesthetically, it has uh, a larger grip and uh, improved weather sealing, um, but it can still shoot at the 20 frames per second that it did before. And, yep. you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's got a great 24 megapixel sensor, which is the same one as it had before. And, and arguably, there's nothing wrong with that hardware as it was. But Sony is not one to keep that stuff the same when they roll out a new version of a camera. Um, so, uh, and, and there are some other specs here that uh, are important, especially with some sporting events coming up. But what, what do you think, before I continue, Jeff, about Sony's push here now into the pro market without making a huge splash? Yeah, and the, the advantage that Sony has is they are leading right now. They, as far as technology goes and performance and, and features, things that are really appealing, there's, there's a, they have a lead. They have a lead over all the other players in the industry right now. That lead closed a little bit last year with Nikon and Canon, both, both coming out with their mirrorless versions of their cameras. But they didn't... I was, I was disappointed that Nikon and Canon didn't close that gap more than they did. So I don't think Sony had to get further down the road and, and really build on that lead too much. There were some things that they have addressed, or they say they have. We'll, we'll see when tests happen, that uh, people have been complaining about. Um, it, they say that they've upgraded their, their weather and moisture resistance, for example, the dust resistance. And dust has been a really big problem for the Sony uh, mirrorless cameras they've they've really struggled there like so much that at, after an hour of shooting no matter the environment didn't change lenses once people are, are i've heard lots of photographers say i have to go clean the sensor already because it just is a dust magnet yeah, yeah I, i'd like to see how how they've uh, revolutionized that um yeah. with the a7r4 because they've said that that's improved and it's the same kind of improvements here um but i haven't the, the A7R4 needs to have like a month or two of real world testing to right, actually right. see if that, that is significantly improved. Yeah. They had another problem too with, uh, it was really bad in A7R3. I can't remember in if the A9 suffered from it either, but they, they put, they had two card slots, but one of them was UHS one. And so it was really, really slow. If you put yeah, in one both was cards than the other, then you slowed down like considerably. I, I don't remember if, if it, it, they do mention here in the, the updated specs that both now are UHS-2 in this camera. Yeah. So so that could that's helpful too. They went to a USB Type-C connector. There's some little things that they they made changes to. And I think their in-body stabilizer is slightly improved yeah. by a half a stop too. Uh, and, and so I, these are all nice things to see. Right. Um, they are things that probably didn't cost them anything to do because, uh, you know, the, the behind the scenes stuff is just improved from iteration of iteration to processors and technology that they might've been putting into other cameras to just bundle that in here. Right. Uh, it's already stuff that's been developed. Right. Right. Yep. And, and so I, I, th I think Sony's just kind of putting it out there saying, okay, we know we're in the lead here. <laughs> we know we have, we have a pretty good corner on the market today. 
And we don't need to push anything new out there yet because we have that lead and people are going to buy this camera, especially if some of those things are true and, and we can eliminate some of the problems. And they're showing, at least with the, the A7R 4 it was, we're, as this was just released, nobody has real good hands-on reviews of this or anything for us to be able to tell. But uh, it, they're showing that they're listening to people as well. They're, they're listening mm-hmm. to customers and their complaints are like, yeah, this this dust problem is really bad. You got to fix this. And they're saying, okay, yep, we listened and we've done something about it. And we'll see if it's effective. But that's an interesting thing, too, because that's not traditionally been something that I've seen a lot of camera manufacturers do over time. Yeah, and I'm glad that they are listening. Uh, and I've um, I, I'm sponsored by by Panasonic, and so Lumix cameras are what I shoot with sure. now. Yep. Um, but I, I love to see when a company um, listens to to the consumers, and Lumix has done a ton of that uh, in the past little while. Anybody that is uh, trying to jump into a new market. Uh, they need to understand who's already in the market and what people actually want. And there have been a few good companies uh, that have kind of, you know, put their ear to the pavement and said, okay, where are people walking to uh, right, right. if they're walking away from us or if they're uh, looking for specific uh, features? And uh, and I'm glad that they are uh, responsive. But one factor here from Sony, and, and I like this, um, is that the A9 was effectively a, a test bed for software updates and improvements behind the scenes using exactly the same hardware. I think they're up to firmware version six, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and yes, maybe they're just artificially incrementing that uh, faster than other manufacturers are when they might do like a 0.1 update and Sony jumps it all the way to a full uh, integer, uh, you know, uh, right. accelerated to make it feel like there's more stuff going inside of it. But that being said, that they have improved the software significantly, and I think that's going to be, we see it in smartphones all the time, where uh, better software, computational photography, AI stuff for autofocus, and and who knows what else, um, have been a real push in, in the photography space on, uh, on the mobile platform, and uh, it's inevitable that it it happens on bigger cameras. And we see a lot of uh, AI-based autofocus is kind of the, the beginning point for that. Because of the fact that this new camera has two uh, uh, UHS-2 SD card slots, that kind of gives me just the assumption that it has under the hood a faster processor, or mm-hmm. it has more uh, more room to push bits around and maybe to do that in a better way. Uh, they haven't said exactly. Uh, it's They say the uh, Beyond's X image uh, processing engine upgraded, blah, blah. But I mean, it's proprietary tech. So right. you don't really know Can't what, what that, that actually means yep. um but uh, uh that being said having that push towards um improvements in software over time like they had shown is quite possible and and a very viable technique uh to make a product not only last longer but become more valuable as time goes on uh, people should expect the a92 uh to carry on in those footsteps and to get better as time goes on and so this is sort of like an initial launch spec list and who knows what sony is going to wrap into this as that um uh, testing and experimenting continues. Now, just one other quick aside: it has a because uh, uh, I know everybody's asking for a gigabit Ethernet port on their cameras. <laughs> right. um, it has a 1000 base T Ethernet terminal, uh, which uh, it makes sense if you are going to be shooting sports at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics right, and you yep. want to plug in and have your images immediately be on an FTP server for whatever news agency has hired you to be there uh, to to download them uh, with. Uh, uh, you know, expediency. And they've also improved. Uh, they've got a five gigahertz uh, wireless band uh, all the way up to the 802.11 AC standard, which is, the, I believe, the fastest, um, like, fully standardized version. Uh, there, there's right. a few uh, beta versions after that. But if you want to have standard, super fast wireless or wired connectivity, um, then uh, this camera would have it. And that's really for those sports shooters. That's uh, right. And they know that uh, if they're going to do any hardware upgrade, especially coming up to the 2020 Olympics, they might get a few more professional photographers or agencies hiring such photographers on board to the Sony platform. That said, the competition already had that. So it's not going to be something that's really going to sway people into this. Um, uh, Although if you were shooting Canon, you would have to buy that as an extra add-on module uh, to have the the, the wireless connectivity. Uh, You'd have the built-in one. But if you want wireless, you'd have to spend an extra couple of hundred bucks to get that on the 1DX Mark II. 
All right. Well, that's, uh, I mean, from a price point standpoint, uh, 50 uh, or uh, $4,500 US. And uh, that's very competitive. Uh, that's uh, that's a notch lower than I believe what the competition flags, uh, flagship prices usually start at. Um, 6,000 Canadian. I remember when I bought a 1DX Mark II, I paid closer to 7,000 Canadian mm-hmm. uh, when it was just released. So um, keep shaking things up, Sony. But I just really wish you would have uh, you know, brought the hammer down with a slightly better sensor on this camera. But I understand where, what you're building on and where we're going because it's not all about megapixels. It's about how you use them, right? Right. Uh, Speaking of uh, pushing limits and pushing to extremes, this next story is fun. Um, So uh, reported from DP Review, the world's largest optical lens uh, has been delivered for a paltry sum of $168 million US um, designed for a 3.2 gigapixel telescope camera. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll take 12. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so if you see this lens, and I encourage you to check out the uh, the show notes for the link to the articles at uh, photogeekweekly.com. This lens is massive. I mean, it is the biggest piece of glass that I have ever seen. Uh, well, and clearly, uh, it is the largest optical lens ever designed. Um, for uh, an upcoming telescope, the uh, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory um, has, uh, has designed where, uh, I, if you take over here, uh, for me to catch my words here, Jeff, um, First of all, what what do you think this uh, LSST Large Synoptic Survey Telescope uh, means for astrophotography? But also, why haven't we done this before? Yeah, I yeah, I, I wish I knew enough about the scientific world to to really have a lot of insight into um, how big a deal this is. Because I mean, it looks like a huge deal to me as I as I read through this, but I don't have like baselines to compare it against to understand like what the leap is, but it's just by their description in here. Um, everything is supersized. <laughs> everything is really, <laughs> really supersized. You got, you have pictures of like guys in lab coats in front of the lens, um, that are just smiling ear to ear because they are so excited about this. It's obvious how much pride and how, how excited they are about this thing and what it's going to do. And then you see, you see the guy operating the forklift, taking this thing out of the FedEx truck. And you're talking about emotion of the success and the pride of the guys in the bunny suits. What about the stress and terror of that yeah, guy operating like, that? Forklift? You better not drop this thing. <laughs> you're, yes. Your company will be bankrupt for sure. If this does not get delivered correctly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and you, you see, of course, that the sensor that's going behind this lens is going to be cutting edge. Um, but, uh, you know, we've had like drool worthy images, uh, in space and sure. like the Hubble sure. uh, telescope, which launched in April of 1990. I mean, that technology that went into showing, uh, that beauty, uh, from Hubble, especially, I mean, uh, after it was fixed and everything else, um, uh, in in orbit, uh, stunning, 1990, and we're still amazed at what it can create today. Now, yes, any terrestrial telescope, uh, regardless of how high you put it with a dry atmosphere around, it isn't going to be quite as good as something in orbit. Uh, I would not want to get one of these in orbit. That would be another feat that uh, I don't think we're ready for as a society to push up a telescope of this scale uh, into the atmosphere. But it, it, <sighs> You look at the latest and greatest advancements in tech, in optics. They're not standard lenses, right? Right. Yes, okay, we could make this one now at a a huge expense. Um, uh, It says, uh, including the massive 1.57 meter diameter L1 optical lens. So over a meter and a half, that's over five feet uh, in (laughs) diameter for this lens. That's insane. Um, but, uh, and, and of course, they've got the, the smaller uh, 1.2 uh, meter or uh, just under four foot L2 lens that are kind of built into this uh, lens um, uh, doublet, or I'm not sure if there's other additional optics put into this. But it seems old school to say, yeah, we're going to take traditional optical design that we've been doing for centuries and make it supersized at a huge cost. When we've talked about it before on the podcast, um, and I brought up uh, one of the stories that we had discussed previously um, from 
from fizz.org. Uh, single metal lens focuses all colors of the rainbow to one point, opens up new possibilities in virtual augmented reality. But these flat metal lenses, these seem like this would be a much more reliable answer moving forward because it can be made flat. It can be made lighter. It could be made into that next generation. Uh, yes, we have that the uh, the James Webb telescope up that's going to be the next generation of what we consider Hubble to be. But um, but even beyond that, right. I mean, if we were to be pushing forward into these kinds of exotic limit pushing lenses, it seems like using the standard, you know, uh, concave design for uh, it. Uh, yes, they could be aspherical. They can be uh, whatever shape that you want, but it's still a big chunk of glass. Um, do you think that sort of like it's the, this is the swan song of those traditional lenses. Like, yes, we will look back on this and say, hey, we did that. That's as far as we could push this. We can't push that envelope any farther. We've got to, you know, start, you know, stuffing all of our secrets into another envelope. I'm, I'm misusing the term envelope, there, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it sure, it sure seems like that's likely what what's going on here. I mean, I, I'm really excited. I'm glad they had the behind the scenes photo so we could see just how excited these uh, these engineers were or, or scientists. I don't know which if they're engineers, scientists, or combination thereof. But they're they're so excited about it, and um, and I, I have to think it's it's the accomplishment that they've built something here that is uh, pushing the envelope, like you'd mentioned. But maybe they do know, like this is going to be the last in this line. This is going to we we have better ways of trying to improve how we can wrangle light into our sensors that uh, over what what we have today and they're excited to see what it'll produce but there's also a lot of excitement about where else they can go with this i'm interested that it talks about their the destination or the the goal of what they want to do with this is uh capture digital images of the entire visible portion of the southern sky so this is yeah. this is not trying to go deep space it, necessarily yeah you're not you're not pulling out nebulas yeah here. this is you're doing 3.2 gigapixel images of the entire night sky and uh, they, they say completion in early 2021 so let's hope that, that stays on track um but if that's possible i mean from a photographic standpoint i mean yeah we can get all giddy over it but you'd have the ability to track objects that are not stars right. uh, potentially with a lot more accuracy um and discover some of those potentially uh you know collision course with earth um asteroids and and other uh you know uh, bodies out there that we might not have discovered that are important because you can't track it all at once, at least not yet. Um, but we might be able to do that soon with 3.2 gigapixels uh, at the helm. Right. And analyzing all of that data. <laughs> That's the other side of it that has to be developed at the same time is something that can actually do something with all that information. And, yeah. and I mean, look at what they have at CERN with the Large Hadron Collider yep. uh, and how much technology had to be developed to just process the data because you get... Uh, petabytes of information coming off of that that is just white noise to anybody. I mean, you have to make sense of it somehow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that that's another exciting thing because that side of it is also developing very, very quickly. We're it, across all industries. The the industry I'm in with information security, we're using big data analysis very regularly, and and artificial intelligence building artificial intelligence that can sift through this incredible amount of data to find attackers and, and find malicious things that are going on that are not normal, that are out of the ordinary. So there's, there's a such development that is going on. So the engineering of, of everything is, is kind of coming together to create capabilities that are astounding and really fun to watch. I wish I could live, you know, two or three other lifetimes because there's so much I want to learn so much <laughs> I want to get into. And, uh, and unfortunately, you know, the world we live in, you you have to specialize a little bit. You you've got to decide kind of what's the most important thing you want to learn because you just can't get to it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you look at how fast things are changing. Uh, it's about every eighteen months or so. There's a new uh, product cycle tick um, in processors and GPUs, and, yeah. and those GPUs can be used for a lot of that deep learning stuff because of all of their uh, you know multitude of stream processors that can all be running concurrently for holistic analysis of things that 
traditional uh, metrics could not pick up on um, that now if it's trained properly, the uh, the computer brains behind uh, this telescope could uh, discover stuff that we wouldn't even be thinking to look That's for. Right. That's right. Uh, and I remember reading, and it's not photography related, but I remember reading a study recently that uh, used uh, a uh, an artificial intelligence neural net, uh, whatever term you want to use, it trained it on uh, scientific papers and across like, like throw every scientific paper into this thing. Uh-huh. And it did so up until about 10 years ago. And that's as much data as it fed it to see if it would be able to uncover areas of study that we should be looking for in the future to discover new materials and, uh, and new material science uh, theories. And it had, uh, it had properly predicted at least a couple um, areas that we should study that we had then subsequently gone into, studied and developed new materials and, uh, and had successful papers written on. And so if we have the ability to adapt similar technology to the night sky to say, okay, here's everything. We don't know what we're looking for, but tell us maybe where we should look after you train yourself enough on what you're seeing. Uh, then I'm vastly overseeing. <laughs> right, right. I know I'm, I, I'm, I'm comparing like apples to bowling balls. Yes, they both <laughs> roll, uh, but they're intended for entirely different purposes. I get that. Don't get mad at me. I don't want the hate mail. But, um, but at the same time, the possibilities of what this can do moving forward with computational photography, uh, I think are currently... Um, uh, unknown, uh, unseen, and uh, only within the next five to 10 years will we fully realize what we can do once we start cross-analyzing this data with all the computer chips we can throw at it. So fun times, exciting time to be alive. It sure is. Uh, all right, let's get into kind of the meat and potato story here, um, which I think we'll all have opinions on one way or another. Um, so from Petapixel, um, is this plagiarism or crazy coincidence in landscape photography? Question mark. Um, so I'll, I'll read the opening of, uh, of this article. Uh, it often happens that other photographers have a similar shot to yours, especially in landscape photography, where there are lots of amazing locations, uh, where a lot of photographers go. I, I mean, just name any famous landmark in the world. It's been photographed a million of times. Of course. Right? Yeah. Uh, so having a similar shot is often not really a problem. Most of the time, these shots are still different because of the lighting conditions, different compositions, even from the same spot. If you get a, a line of photographers all looking at the same thing, they'll all have a slightly different perspective perspective on it than the person standing next to them in terms of focal length or uh, whatever else. Uh, and so the, um, the article is, uh, is written by Norman Gordon here, but that that's a pseudonym. I believe it says at the bottom here, um, uh, Norman Gordon, not his real name is a prominent landscape photographer. So we don't know who actually wrote this article. Um, but recently came across a photographer whom I'll call Mario Rossi. Now that's also not a real name. This is also a pseudonym, uh, hiding behind a not, a not, uh, anonymity here because you really don't need to know who these people are to fulfill the discussion. Um, uh, whose work uh, may be strangely and uncomfortably similar to photos by other photographers. The photos appear to have been captured from exactly the same spot with the same composition and even the same light, either by waiting for the perfect lighting or perhaps simulating it in Photoshop. And then he finds a bunch of examples. So um, uh, one from the Italian photographer Bruno Pisani, and then you take a look at uh, Mr. Rossi's photo, and it is shockingly similar. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite the same. You can tell that there's a bit of difference in compression, maybe a, a different lens being used. So that that one is actually one of the more different versions. Uh, but then there's another photo by Fabio Marcini, another Italian photographer, and Rossi's version. Um which is, again, shockingly similar, like as close as you could possibly be. If you were trying to duplicate it, um, then this is what you would get. If you uh, if you put concerted and considerable effort into making the exact same shot your own and the comparisons uh, continue. Another one from Bruno Pisani. Uh, further down, there's one from Enrico Fossati. A lot of Italian photographers here, so maybe he's Italian mm-hmm. as well. Um, but uh, you've seen these images and and so 
where where do you fall? What is your initial thought on on this? Is this copyright infringement? Is this plagiarism? Is this copying? Is this uh, doing like a cover song? Like you know, I mean, because if one band sings your song and and kind of gives you credit for it, I mean, is is does it add his own artistic flair uh, to the construction of the image? It's a it's a really really good question. And I think in photography in particular, this is a little bit more difficult to deal with than a lot of other artistic mediums. Um, because we're, for the most part, we're photographing the real world and everybody can go and get in the same spot and photograph the real world. And so taking inspiration, people do that regularly, right? Across all artistic mediums. You take inspiration from life experience. You take inspiration from the things that that you're experiencing in life to contribute to your artistic output, your creativity. Now, the really great ones are the ones that come up with something completely new, but that's kind of rare. That's kind of a yeah. A, a, it's it's special when there's someone who is able to do that. That's totally new. Plenty can take that inspiration and then add their own flair to it. And it's still a very good creative output, creative work. Clearly in these images, there's more than just a little inspiration going on. The photographer has set out to reproduce the image. And I love that exercise. Actually, I've I've done that plenty, but it's really for my own use. Like I, I will look at something and say, I really want to figure out how they did that. I want to master the techniques that it took to produce that image as a learning exercise for me more than anything else. It's it's not that I'm going to intend to try to go sell the work that I produce that looks really, really close. It's more I want to learn how to do it. And then I'm going to I have a desire to make it look different. I want to see what I can do with it different from there. And that's what I'd be interested in producing. So I, I can understand wanting to go and replicate essentially what he's doing. The the danger side is some of it is so close. I wonder if he took pixels from the original. That <laughs> I know. And, and that's where things get a little bit tricky uh, in some of them. At least one of them, I can tell that he's added in sky elements sure. in the original photograph. Sure. And, and um, it's not too difficult if you've ever done any uh, compositing to pick up on that. Um, and so I think in one, maybe two of them, he's done that. Um, in the very last one where there's Joshua trees, um, he's chosen a different tree and, um, he's got a similar framing and balance to the image. Uh, but I actually like his tree more sure, that he chose right. to put in, in the front of it. And in about half of them, I'd say he did a better job, even if it's in exactly the same spot. And uh, it might be the, the lighting, it might be the post-processing that's uh, been done to, uh, to improve the results. But, okay, does this constitute copyright infringement? And I think uh, we can all draw the line as to whether or not you want to directly copy somebody else's work from a moral or ethical standpoint. But uh, like you said, you'll do it for different purposes. And I've, I've photographed some, um, like in upstate New York, which is maybe about a four-hour drive from me, there's Watkins Glen. And inside Watkins Glen, there is Rainbow Falls. And I had seen somebody else's image of it. Uh, in fact, if you just type Rainbow Falls Watkins Glen into Google, you'll find a million images that look almost exactly the same. Right. And I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go to that spot. And I walked all around and I found the perfect spot for me happened to have been the exact same perfect spot that everybody else was specifically choosing. There's really only one good spot to photograph that thing. So that's why a lot of the images look specifically identical. Whereas in a lot of these other landscape images, there could have been a lot of different angles or, uh, or you know, uh, fields of view uh, that you could have chosen. You could have walked around a little bit and found something that was a little bit more unique. But it seems that it was quite deliberate to replicate exactly the same image in a lot of these uh, 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 photographs. So this brings me back to the red bus. Uh, are you familiar with this copyright story? I am. Yes. So this is from the this is from the UK, and of course, copyright law is going to be different in every country. Um, but this was one that um, 
okay. So effectively, you have a uh, you know a famous red double decker bus in London um, in front of uh, the Parliament buildings, and so you got Big Ben uh, or the Big Ben clock tower. Of course, Big Ben is the uh, the bell. You don't actually see him, um, but you, you've got all that ingredient uh, of red bus crossing the bridge. Everything else is forced to black and white, and so it's a similar concept. They are vastly different images from different angles. Yes, it is a red bus in roughly the same spot, but they are significantly different compositions. They have the same visual ingredients, but they are far, far more different than any of the images we're talking about in this current plagiarism story. So um, if I if I read a little bit from this article, I think it will kind of put it into perspective why I'm bringing this up. So um, Mr. Fielder, I guess the person that created the original image, claimed that Mr. Hewton's work reproduced a substantial part um, of his original work and so infringed his copyright. Mr. Hewton contested that in terms of copyright protection, that his picture was significantly different from Mr. Fielder's work, um, which was so ordinary that copyright could be infringed only by copying it exactly, which is very interesting based on the story that we're just talking about. Uh, For example, by making a photocopy, which is almost, like you said, some pixels might have been stolen from one of those images to another. Um, According to Mr. Hewton, Mr. Fielder could not rely on copyright law to establish a monopoly on a black and white image of the Houses of Parliament with a red bus in frame, right? Because copyright is not designed to do that specifically. Right. Uh, Mr. Hewton argued that these elements are, quote, common elements in everyday life, which cannot be copyright protected. Now, the judge in this case, Justice Byers, uh, gave judgment in favor of Mr. Fielder, the person that took the original photograph. He found that Mr. Hewton copied a substantial part of Mr. Fielder's picture and thus infringed his copyright. The judge held that there was obvious similarities between the two images, such as the same buildings in black and white with a bright red bus driving uh, from right to left uh, with a blank white sky, and that these similarities were due to the fact that Mr. Hewton saw Mr. uh, Fielder's work uh, before creating his own image, had copied it, and had copied too much of it. So... Okay, so this is one judgment in one country by a judge that may or may not have properly understood exactly what the law was to the letter. I would contest this decision if I had the ability to do so, but still, we have a judgment. And if we apply that same judgment to the pseudonym Mr. Rossi uh, and his work, then uh, yeah, it's copyrighted for judgment. That's right. But By the same definitions, that would be exactly the same because the composition differences in this real case that happened are much larger <laughs> than the composition yeah. differences in the, in the petapixel article. That we're talking and in about. fact, the person that was defending their, uh, uh, what, what, what is determined now legally as like a derivative work, uh, if they have the same terminologies, I mean, it's, uh, it's copy copyright infringed. What they were claiming was original about the image was that it was not exactly the same. Uh, and that if it was exactly the same, yes, it would be copyright infringement. That's the person trying to defend their work in this case and citing that, yes, it, it is not identically the same. Whereas, uh, it's pretty hard to argue in almost every one of these other cases um, that uh, have come, come to light in this Petapixel article that, uh, yeah, there was a deliberate intent to make them as close as possible to one another. Now, should that be illegal, though? I mean, if you have the intent to make something as identical to somebody else's work as you possibly can, should there be a legal response against that? This is where I have a struggle. This is a real challenge in, in my own head about what exa- how exactly I feel about this. Like I said, I, I, I like to do this as a learning exercise, not something I intend to go out and be like, hey, look, I, I created the image that's exactly the same, and now you can buy it from me for less or you know something like that. That's not where I'm going with it, my, with my own personal interests and needs. It's just, how did you do that? How did you replicate it? But with... with Common landmarks, places that are photographed continuously, the um, the lighting is going to end up looking really similar a lot. For sure, all of the landmark things are going to be the exact same. And so it's not really fair to think that people can copyright how the light looked on a particular day with those landmarks 
when that day is going to come again where it's going to look really, really close and well, they may be able yeah, to capture I, it. <laughs> Otherwise, the first person who ever photographed the Yosemite Firefall would be Oodles right, right now. Right, right. Yeah, you can't do that. It just, that that is not a fair thing. And then with the, there's so much technology. We've been talking a lot about how there's artificial intelligence things helping us or hurting us in various ways. There's so many things now that can help people find the exact spot. There's the GPS stuff. If, if you put, turn that on, then you can find where they took it. It's embedded in the metadata, the images in, in a lot of cases now, unless you make a decision to turn that off. Um, there's, there's even going to be just analysis of uh, maps, the way Google Maps is going and app, uh, all of the map vendors. There's ways that the, our ability to be able to like sit in exactly the same spot where someone took a photo is only increasing and going to make it more likely that someone's going to be able to say, oh, I see exactly how they did this. And then if, if you have the knowledge to understand what lens you should use and how you should, what lighting you should wait for, which you can figure that out with other apps there too, then you're going to end up with similar images. And that's... I, it's, we have to be able to do that. That's got to be something that we we allow photographers to do. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I come down on it uh, from a very similar perspective. I One of my most famous images I call maple leaf flag. It's Canadian uh, as Canadian can get. It's red maple leaves on a bed of fresh snow in the shape of the Canadian flag. And I'd come up with this idea. At the time, I did a Google search and couldn't find any similar images. Not to say that anybody hadn't shot it before me. I just right. couldn't find it. Right. Right. Uh, and... I uh, preserved the leaves in the fall by ironing them between wax paper and uh, waited for fresh snowfall on a sunny day with absolutely no wind. And I set up the shot and I, you know, I, I used a lot of knowledge all the way back to kindergarten when you remember ironing leaves between wax paper. Oh, yeah. Way to yeah. make your uh, little souvenir from the season. Um, and, you know, wax leaves are reflective. So I'm using a polarizing filter in order to cut down on the reflection on the. Yeah, a lot of uh, skill, time and effort went into creating that. Um, if somebody were to create exactly the same shot as I had just described, I, I, my process is transparent. I don't hide anything. Right. Uh, well, I mean, hmm, would I be upset? Well, people have, as soon as I published that image, they replicated it in their own means. People sometimes replace the snow with birch bark uh, or used fake leaves or whatever you want. I mean, I can't copyright an idea, right? I, I can right. copyright my rendition of that idea. And yes. if somebody else's rendition comes too close, well, I mean, how close is too close is really the, because uh, in that case, I only have very simple ingredients, red maple leaves in a specific shape. If somebody tried to mimic the exact placement of the exact leaves on a bed of snow um, with natural bright light coming on it, casting a bit of a shadow, giving it a three-dimensional quality, you know, I might take issue with that. Um, but if anybody takes their own stylized approach to it, yeah, have at. Just don't steal mine. Right. Um, and I guess we're all going to draw the line differently. And that's when the, the lawyers and the judges have to, to come <laughs> right. in and, uh, and give us a definitive answer. But, um, that's the world we live in today where, uh, the work of others is going to be shockingly similar to our own, um, whether they intend to or not. And I think that's really what the point of contention is here, whether it's intentional, uh, to directly replicate the same thing as somebody else. Um, and then what do you do with it? Because if you're doing it for your own personal collection, that's one thing. If you're doing it, uh, to potentially license it to people or to sell fine art prints of it. Well, that that's another story as well when you're yeah, commercializing right. it. So uh, gray area for sure. Great points of discussion all around. So thanks for uh, giving me your opinions on that one, Jeff. Yeah. All right. Before we go on to our next story, uh, I made a point uh, in the last episode to call out a, um, a review uh, that was left uh, for the podcast. And it was a negative one. Uh, but here's a positive one. Thank you from Kit in Canada um, that says superb and worthy of another superb, excellent summary of the industry's news, well-controlled, topical, and informative. One of the best shows out there, five stars on iTunes. So thank you very much, Kit. I appreciate the uh, the review. Thanks for listening. And uh, anybody else that wants to leave us a nice review, I'd be happy to uh, hunt it down and read it on a future episode. So um, yeah, onward and upward, keeping the audience entertained. <laughs> um, okay. Final story, uh, 
I have a love and hate relationship with uh, the latest and greatest smartphone technology. Uh, from Petapixel, the Samsung Galaxy S11 will boast a 108 megapixel main camera and five times zoom, says a report. No, just stop <laughs> it, people. <laughs> stop. <Yeah. laughs> okay, no matter how how many megapixels if you wanted to put like a gigantic medium format size sensor on a smartphone well yes if you could somehow get a lens to a, a, a fit but you can't you have to have a small sensor right. because the cameras themselves have to be relatively small uh and thereby when you want to cram uh 100 megapixels plus Onto a sensor that size, you hit so many technological limits that just completely remove the usefulness of that. If it's a marketing term, well, maybe that's even working against you because I don't know of anybody that's even asking for this. Right. Um, so, okay. Um, this is using a, um, uh, a technology where instead of just having a, an array of uh, four pixels, two green, one red, and one blue, you're basically doubling that up. Uh, and so you will have for every one of those pixels, you have four, you're cutting it. Oh, sorry, I guess you're kind of quadrupling, uh, the, uh, the, the resolution there. And uh, the Tetracell technology uh, will pack, they claim, and I don't know where these numbers are coming from because I can't do the, the math to figure out the divisions to uh, 43.7 megapixels onto the chip which in and of itself is still stupid. It is. That's crazy. I mean, and, and the reason why I'm so against this is due to diffraction. And this is just common physics here. Light, when it passes through an opening, is going to bend, just like water will bend when it passes through the opening on like a, a ripple tank table, if you remember from science class. Um, and that diffraction will make light start to bend off course. And the smaller that opening, the more light will bend off course. And what this means is, if you have the photosites on the sensor, uh, so this is the pre-pixel term, this is the actual light collecting uh, units, if you have them smaller and smaller, then light bending off course is going to be coloring outside the lines. And so in, in the simplest terms possible, it's going to give you blurry results where the lens and the optics cannot possibly resolve what the sensor is purporting to have a resolution of. Um, and I encounter this a lot with macro photography. When you get to higher and higher magnifications, diffraction becomes a problem. Um, and yeah, there's some ways around that to some degree, but uh it's just not possible from a pure numbers perspective for you to overcome that diffraction problem. Yeah, you know what? You're going to have smooth out-of-focus areas rather than noisy ones, but it's like, what's the analogy that I could give, Jeff? Um, film. If we go back to like 35 millimeter film, and if you scan a grainy frame of Tri-X at 6,000 DPI, Yes, you will have a 6,000 DPI <laughs> and you can zoom in and see all of the quality of the grain in that film. That does not mean you have a higher resolution image right. that has higher resolving power of the image itself, right? right? Again, it's an apples to oranges comparison, but I think we get the point. Yeah, I, I have a, a little different analogy that I want to try out on you. All right. Let, let's say that you've, you've, uh, you've created a little canister where you can pour spaghetti noodles, like raw spaghetti noodles, okay? Okay. And this canister has a grid of holes in it that you're that, that is only each hole is only big enough to accept one spaghetti noodle. So it's massive this canister and now you're now what you have to do is to fill that canister, you have to just pour spaghetti noodles onto this canister. And how likely it is that all of those spaghetti noodles are just going to seamlessly go <laughs> from the package into the canister through these little holes. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really kind of what they're trying to do here. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You're going to end up with very few spaghetti noodles in the holes when it's that tight to get it in there. I, you know, I, and again, I'm not sure it's a perfect analogy, no. but to that point, I don't think there is a perfect one uh, without actually just taking a moment and understanding what diffraction is doing. And, right. uh, and so, you know, when you have your uh, your photo sites that much smaller than any perceptible circle of confusion, you're just you're gathering all of this data. And then what are you going to do with it? 
Okay. I mean, you're, you're going to have to store it or, or you're going to have to process it first. Uh, and with all the computational photography that we are doing these days with so many different layers of computation applied to every photograph taken with a smartphone, it's going to take a lot more power to do that. Uh, and so maybe that's battery life that will take a hit. Um, maybe it's time that will take a hit. Um, or maybe uh, it's just that you're going to run out of storage space because by the time you get these files and yeah, you know, if, if at the end of it, it says um, you might end up with like a, a 27 to 43 megapixel file at the end of it, but that's still massive compared to don't go. I don't know. Just, uh, maybe we should make a rule, Jeff. Don't go over 20 megapixels on a smartphone. Can we just put that as a limit? <laughs> Unless they- and if you're doing that. Then uh, you you better come up with some radically new technology. Yeah, uh, behind yeah. The scenes, um, unless they increase the size of that sensor a lot, make it way bigger, taking up more space inside the phone. And maybe we'll see that someday. Maybe there's there's things are in are decreasing in size for the rest of the stuff in there, and we already have kind of a, a good form factor. I think uh, there's been a pre- a preference for a lot of people to have a little bit larger phone anyway. So maybe there's room for that. And that that's where I'll be more excited about it when there's yeah. the sensor size itself actually increases. But what I would rather do is still have a small sensor and have more interesting optics applied in front of it. And they are going to be doing sure. that, uh, w- w- at least from what I can see here, is uh, adding a five times optical zoom um, by effectively, uh, if you could imagine that you know, five times zoom, it would stick out quite a bit on the back of the, the phone and it would be kind of unwieldy and, uh, yeah, it, right. it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be that nice. But what if you put the, uh, the sensor sideways and the lens sideways and you have a prism that will, uh, basically allow you to take the light in, bend it on a 45 degree angle to then go through all of the optics and the lens, uh, uh, optics and into the sensor. So what that allows you to do is to have a, a longer and more flexible optical formula that can zoom in and out and move around a little bit. That would be like a little rectangular, uh, rectangular notch, uh, or bump on the back of your phone that wouldn't protrude much more than your regular lens would. Um, and with that mirror, uh, allow the light to just kind of bend on that, uh, you know, 45 degree angle into it now functioning horizontally. Uh, I would like to see more of that, actually. I think that that's a really fun innovation. So long as, again, it doesn't protrude too much out of the back of the phone. Um, it gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of how you design the optics without having to make them pancake small, uh, which I think we've pushed pretty well right. up to the limits of of in terms of what we can get out uh, without doing some of the new crazy nanotech uh, that, yeah, that'll probably come too. Um, But that was innovative, at least. I'll give Samsung that, that this kind of periscope type lens concept, uh, I would like to see more of. And that will purportedly be on the Galaxy S11 uh, with all of those pixels, whether or not you can find a use for it. I'm excited to see too what the computational end of it. So you've talked about the physical side of it, which of course there's room for a lot more experimentation. So I, I'm glad to see that too from, from Samsung here or their, their partners who are helping them to build these, the, the lens that's being used. That's a good thing and, and hopefully will lead to better technology that's going to make better photos. But I'm also really excited to see the computational photography that's being done, pushed here in smartphones more than anywhere else because it has... Uh, the best platform to be able to try to push that envelope. The cameras today have not really done this. They haven't leveraged the processing power to try to push computational photography. And the phones have a lot of power under the hood there, a lot of resources to throw at this. And it's exciting to see kind of how they can merge these two things. How do we physically make it so that we can also take advantage then of computational photography and when you put the two together really produce some incredible things i love the direction where that's headed to and and what's exciting coming out of that yeah uh and that's uh, every year uh it is a yearly thing now where we have the new limits being pushed i just um picked up uh, an iphone 11 to test out its uh you know qualities and currently my my wife is doing the groundwork testing that out with uh, snapshots of her daughter and everything else and (laughs) i'll run it through some paces as well um compared to what it was 
I mean, she was perfectly fine with right, her right. <laughs> uh, iPhone uh, 6S, which is uh, arguably long in the tooth. And, you know, yeah, I could, you know, replace the battery in it and give it more life. But uh, let's just see what computational photography can do today um, versus, heck, what it's going to do five years from now. Because oh, yeah. that landscape is changing so quickly and stuff. Like when we're talking about what this uh, Galaxy S11 will be uh, boasting uh, within this next product cycle, what's the S14 or S15 going to be, right? right? It's right. Uh, And yeah, some of it's marketing terms. Some of it is actual real world. And the proof is going to be in the pudding because when people clamor over the, the latest and greatest features, like what uh, Google has done with the pixel and low light technology, right. uh, even applying that retroactively to older phones. Uh, if we get that kind of innovation uh, with the latest and greatest sensors and optics that continues to push forward, um, yeah. I don't know, man. I might not even bring uh, an interchangeable lens camera with me when I travel. I'll still keep it for all my professional work, but maybe the phone will be good enough for travel photography. We will see. For sure. Yeah. It's always the case that the best camera you have is the one you have with you. So so the more capable that phone camera is, the better it's going to be for me to make sure I, I have something that can capture the images and help me to create the images that I want to create. When I, I don't have my camera with me all the time, it's just not practical for me to do that. And But I do have my phone with me all the time. So I love, I love the innovation. I love pushing the envelope and, and making it so that we do the best we can with the technology. It's, it's really fun. I love the, the time we live in. It's awesome. Well, that pretty well puts a pin in it, Jeff. Uh, so but before we get to our picks of the week, um, uh, how about uh, people uh, get in touch with you? Uh, how can people find your podcast and where you are on the internets at large? Yep. So I, I am in two other podcasts, listen to Photo Geek Weekly regularly, but I also produce a show called Photo Taco and... It's a it's a name we came up with just to be different, just to try to to have because there's there's so many photography related podcasts. So thought that might draw in some people, and it doesn't end up really representing anything. It's just a, a name, but it's it's a a show where I try to break down technical kinds of processes, technical things that people do with photography, especially for someone who's kind of newer to photography, so they can figure out what is it, what do these terms mean, what are the what, how do you do things, um, make it as easy as possible for normal people is what my wife calls it all the time. <laughs> how is a normal person supposed to do this? Um, so I do that. And then Master Photography is a, is a weekly show where uh, we just talk about news, techniques, tips, tricks, stuff like that. Uh, not as technically focused, although I'm on it a lot. So there's still I bring a lot of the, the geekery <laughs> into that <laughs> weekly show as well. Awesome. Uh, and uh, we'll have the links to where people can find you in uh, in social media online. Yep. You are Harmon underscore Jeff on Twitter, where we converse regularly. You have your own uh, photography website. You know, hey, maybe somebody does want to hire you for portraiture. Um, and that is uh, jsharmonphotos.com, uh, amongst many other places where you can be found, correct? That's right. All right. So again, the show notes at photogeekweekly.com will be where you can find all of those links uh, to the stories where you can find Jeff and for our picks of the week. Jeff, do you have anything that you'd like to share with us? So I've been thinking about what should I share on your show? And I think I'm going to reshare one of the, the long time things that is just so valuable, but I love inexpensive ones. It's the uh, the rocket blaster, I, I think it's called. I'm going to grab it right here. It's uh, Mine is from Giotto, I think it's it's said. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's it's this little black air. Uh, when you it, It's flexible, and when you squeeze it, it blasts out air. It's really helpful for getting dust off your sensor. Don's got a, a different one that I, he's, he's showing me on the video, but... <laughs> Um, I, I love it. It's it, they're very inexpensive. You don't. There's not a specific brand. I think you have to have, but it's just helpful to be able to uh, to do that because a lot of times the dust just needs a little gentle push. It doesn't need uh, it doesn't need a, a big a cleanser or something a stick in there to to get it off. You just need a little blast of air and it comes right off and and then you're good to go. So. I love this. Yeah, and I use it for the rear element on lenses as well. Sure, yeah. Because oftentimes you'll see that there's a couple of specks of dust on the rear element, and I don't want to get in there with a sensor cleaning swab or a... uh, 
uh, a cloth of some kind when I can just use a, a bulb blower of any kind. The rocket blower that you have, mine is from a company called Visible Dust that makes um, sensor cleaning equipment as well. But again, the brand doesn't matter. No. Um, uh, and so if I can get that off of the rear element, then that's less likely to find its way into the camera body uh, as well. And so uh, just keep yourself clean. A bulb blower is something that I always have handy, and it's always part of my camera cleaning regiment. Uh, great idea, Jeff. Uh, something that we haven't recommended before. And mine is um, something that I was playing with lately, uh, a, a company called Platypod that I've been working more and more with. They make um, uh, small little flat pieces of aluminum that are uh, custom machined with little tripod screws and accoutrements that you can use as a base little tiny tripod, um, especially in places where you need to get super low and uh, or where a tripod's not allowed. Or when you just don't feel like carrying a tripod with you and you just want to stick this tiny little thing into your camera bag. Uh, great for travel work. But they're coming out with these little gooseneck arms, which are flexible metal arms that are really sturdy and they can screw right into a Platypod base. Um, I was using one with a Platypod Max uh, tripod for a couple of, uh, of shots recently. One where I was photographing fluorescing diamonds and it totally brought up my mad scientist vibe using all these arms <laughs> to uh, attach these lights in exactly the right way. And then one using a uh, very simple setup uh, for water droplet refraction photography. Uh, in the past, I've used uh, cheap little third-hand tools, which work. They'll, they'll get the job done. Um, but if you want kind of the Cadillac of being able to uh, position and control things robustly, um, this is sort of an all-in-one kind of solution. You can get two of the uh, of the gooseneck arms in a package for thirty bucks US, so the price is not huge. Uh, they were on pre order, and uh, then I pre ordered their entire air shipment that is coming through when I uh, posted some of my images recently. So they've closed the pre orders for now. <laughs> I'm going to uh, ask uh, Larry at Platypod uh, to see if he can reopen them, even though they won't be showing up uh, his uh, his sea based shipment, the the slower ones uh, until until November. But uh, hey, it would make sense if you order them now. You just It'll take a little bit of time before you actually uh, get them in your hands. But they are a wonderful thing to have. Um, whether or not you're using them on a platypod base, I mean, just having these swivelable, controllable gooseneck arms, it's great. They're stackable. Uh, so you can put two of them on top of each other if you need an extra long reach. Um, and there is a, a little extra port on the side of them. That's uh, They were designed to just kind of hold the coupler that would uh, uh, normally allow you to put an accessory on on one side. It's a male-to-male adapter. But I could see myself just screwing in an extra, like make this whole like crazy octopus-style uh, contraption with all of these arms connected together in some fun and crazy ways. So um, the Platypod Gooseneck Arms is my pick of the week. Not a terribly expensive one and something that for tabletop macro uh, gives you a lot of flexibility and, uh, and functionality. So there you have it. All right, that is the picks of the week, and that winds down the show. So thank you, Jeff, once again for being on. I should have you on more often. You're a great voice to have on this podcast. Um, uh, and again, people can find you at the Photo Taco Podcast, which I think I'll be on again very soon. Yes. So if you want to check that out within the next couple of weeks, you'll probably hear my voice over there. Um, and uh, thanks again to everybody for listening and for the reviews and all the commentary that I get either on the website or via email. All of your opinions are greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening. Now it's time to get out and shoot. Thank you.